there's a lot of little personality psychological things you got to watch for and uh and and really you're just keeping sometimes you're protecting the music from the artist like the artist is going to mangle the music in some way like right miss uh, their ideas might over their production ideas might overtake the music to a degree and you got to say hey you know ease up you know or they might try to do things too rigid when it should be looser sure you know click track no click track uh what kind of instrumentation you know there's a lot of variables and a lot of decisions the portland 50 podcast is brought to you by jaguar land rover portland one company two iconic brands jaguar land rover portland is a don rasmussen company the legendary portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. Our guest on this episode is Larry Crane. He's a recording engineer, he's been a bassist in a band, and he's the owner and founder of Portland's Jackpot Recording Studio, which is often called Portland's most important recording studio, seeing the likes of Sleater Kinney, The Decemberist, Jenny Lewis, M. Ward, R.E.M., and many, many more. Larry is also the editor of Tape Op Magazine. Back in 2003, he became the music catalog archivist for Elliot Smith following the singer's death. So do you, how often do you travel? Are you traveling a lot or are you in Portland most of the days? I'm usually in Portland, yeah. but um, because of my work, because of Tape Op Magazine, uh, especially the, that I founded in 1996 here, Portland. You actually founded um, that before you founded Jackpot Recording Studio. True, true, totally, yeah. totally true. Um, yeah, I started this, the the magazine in 1996 and the studio in 1997, so about a year apart. But um, you know, it uh, because of the magazine, the studio keeps me here. Yeah, and then the magazine takes me out of town. So, uh, like, I was just in, in uh, Anaheim, California, before this for the uh, the Winter Nam uh, mm-hmm. show, which is a big music merchandisers conference, like. I don't even know how many, you know, fifty, hundred thousand people go to this thing. Yeah, and it's massive. And we we go there. We sell advertising, and we look at products to review. And I talk with people about potential interviews that I'm going to do. And then I went to um, Chicago and interviewed interviewed uh, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. Mm-hmm. And I, I visited those guys at their their loft place. I met up with all the Wilco guys. They actually were happened to be in town and most of them I already knew which is kind of funny <laughs> do you ever because um, if you look through your resume the people that have been through jackpot the people that you've worked with one on one are you kind of, are you kind of like man I can't believe I got to do that does all, that happen to you often all the time yeah all the time I mean it's not even that massive of a fame level in some ways but the some of the clients that have come through that I haven't even met have included like Sonic Youth. Well, I've actually have met Sonic Youth, but I haven't even recorded them. Yeah, you know Sonic Youth, REM, Eddie Vedder. People have come in to do sessions. The singer Matt Bellamy from Muse. Sure. Yeah. You know, all kinds of people have come through like on tour or to do demos or something, and um, and that's amazing. You know, but then the the number that I've actually worked with as well in the studio is kind of crazy. You know. Before we get too much into to Jackpot, I think yeah. I think we should talk more about Tape Op because sure. since, since you started that first, but maybe we should start even <laughs> further back from that. Oh You're not originally from Portland. That's a good fact. <laughs> um, I, I, I grew up in Northern California, not not that far away, yeah. actually. And uh, I was born in Berkeley, raised in Oakland, and then also raised in Nevada City, that area. Okay. Up a lot of tree. The- I remember the first time I vis- visited Nevada City, and I'm like, wait, there's a city here? There's a city buried in the trees? Yeah, it's it's, it's crazy. Beautiful. I mean, we, we've got similar things here, but I, mm-hmm. my first time in Nevada City, I was just like, this is... If you if you lived in Nevada City, the, the Northwest is very comfortable to you. It right. It feels very familiar. Yeah. 
And then I lived in Chico, California. I went to college okay. there. And I started playing in a band um, with the wonderful moniker of Vomit Launch. Yeah, I, um, that, I've got it right here. Vomit yeah. Launch. You were the bassist. Yeah, I was the bassist, so, a co-songwriter with everybody. Who came up with the name? Do you remember that conversation? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll put the blame on someone. Do you know a record store in town called Exiled Records? Yeah. Okay, Lindsay from that store was our guitar player. Okay. And Lindsay Thrasher and a friend of ours, Doug, came up with the name. And uh, we just picked the the one that we thought was funniest of the list that they had. Sure. One night, and you know you can regret that for eight <laughs> years. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, having vomit launch on a resume is pretty awesome, <laughs> and, and it's pretty rock and roll. It's yeah, you know, it kind of fit the times. We were we were there were bands playing like the Butthole Surfers, right? And, and Sonic Youth would be a good band name. They don't, you know, dance. The names were silly, right? And we were like, you know, what the hell doesn't? We're not going to become you know famous no, no one we know no bands we ever play if they're going to become famous and yeah. then you know one day nirvana opened for us and you know <laughs> wait, hold, wait hold on nirvana opened for vomit launch they weren't even on the bill they showed up and we were opening for mud honey yeah and uh just a two-band bill and this van pulls up and uh and we knew the roadie because he'd been in a band that had opened for us in yeah. tacoma once but yeah so we were like okay uh, sure. I'm sure my bandmates were because I was I was lo- I was I'd gotten in an auto accident on the way to the gig. <laughs> anyway, but but you know before that, like even we were coming up to the Northwest a lot. Right. Uh, we'd be we we were having our records were being distributed through K Records in Olympia, mm-hmm. uh, Calvin Johnson's label. Um, we had friends that were on Sub Pop before the Nirvana thing happened, um, and we just made we made some good friends in the Northwest, and so we would come up here and play, and we played Portland a lot with. Uh, Cracker Bash, Calamity Jane, uh, the Dharma Bums, all the local really awesome bands. We yeah. played shows with, met them, befriended them, would party with them, hang out. And so when the band, when our band broke up in 92, uh, about six months later, Lindsay and I both moved up here. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't the van breaking down in Portland and you're just like, oh, let's just stay. Oh, almost. It broke down in weed a couple of times, yeah. Sure. <laughs> it didn't quite get home. Okay, so yeah, so uh, but uh, Portland had obviously made an impression on um, two of you, at least yeah. enough for you guys to both come back up here. You know, Lindsay moved up first. We were just really, we've, been, we've always been really good friends. And uh, she moved up first and, and said, come visit. You know, mm-hmm. I came to visit. And I'm like, yeah, this is, we always had a good time on tour. And we even got stuck here once for like, four days between gigs right you know i went to powell's i went to ozone records i was like this town's pretty cool yeah and uh so when when time came to you know chico is a small town it's a college town it's kind of like living in eugene mm-hmm. it, it works for some people and other people want to move on you right. know need after, something after, a little bigger after school right yeah yeah and so i um i was like yeah i could do this and i came up here um and i was going to get out of the music world completely mm-hmm. that didn't work <laughs> Um, I I think I read a quote from you once that basically said you didn't set out to be a a recording engineer. You didn't set out to be a musician. You were just a fan of music and it just Mm -hmm. kind of has steered the ship. Absolutely. I mean, I think being a music fan was the first thing that really got me involved. And uh, I kind of got into the technical end of it way early on. And I had electronics courses in uh, high school Mm -hmm. and we would build these little boxes. And... um, and I kind of wanted to make bleepy noises and record them to cassette. So I figured out how to do some of that kind of stuff. And I bought some mics and recorded my friends that played, uh, you know, real instruments like guitars. I, you know, that was early on. I was like 16, eight, 17, 18, you know. Um, and then, uh, like when I was 21, I was kind of making these solo cassettes. I was putting these things out that were kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
around 81 or 85, sorry. Actually, before that, like in the 82, probably, I started doing radio, college radio. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I got, I'd already gotten a radio license that you had to have back there right. in high school. So I, I took a course. I even had one of those. Yeah, so you don't have to have them now. Not anymore. Not no, they, this. they put anybody on the radio. Yeah. I'm pointing to myself now. <laughs> You know, but I got my little card. I took a course yeah. and, and I learned about radio and FCC stuff. And uh, I learned not to say certain words right. and all those things. Mm-hmm. And I sat in on radio shows when I was a teenager, you know, up in uh, Nevada City. Uh, KVMR, really good station. Okay. Pub- public radio. And uh, so I went to Chico, did worked at the college radio station, became a music director. Um, and then a DJ, of course. And then along the way, I started playing in a band with a couple of other DJs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lindsay thrasher and uh, patricia roland now hmm. now known as patricia howard okay and uh and so we started the band vomit launch and then eventually got a great drummer from england named steve bragg and we started just touring up and down the west coast and stuff and then next thing you know nirvana's opening for you yeah next thing you know <laughs> and we, we you know we headlined cbgb's on a saturday yeah. and the guy from matador Records set that show up because he was a friend and the magnetic fields opened we had all kinds of we played with like the replacements dead kennedys mm-hmm. i mean it was kind of of the time we were doing, you know, the really good circuit, you know, that when you read the history, like the history books, you know, have written us out, but we were out right there alongside all these other bands like Who's Could Do and, yeah. and Replacements and all these wonderful bands that were going on back then. So you make it to you make it to Portland after the band breaks up. What did you come here to do? Not, and that was not going to be music focused. I, I was going to do um, electronics actually, mm-hmm. and I went and worked in a place in Tigard for like two weeks, and I had to be there at six a.m. And um, believe me, going to see bands at Satyricon and then going right <laughs> out and, and soldering at six a.m. Yeah, was really hard. I was getting pretty sleepy, and uh, and they just didn't pay that well. Honestly, they, there was a point where I said. They were gonna. They were hiring me through a temp company, and they were gonna have me on. I said, I asked someone, "What do you make?" And she goes, eight fifty. And this is twenty twenty five years ago, but eight fifty for being there for three years and having a lot of responsibility. Right. I was like, "You're kidding me." Yeah. Um, I went and started working for McMenamins, and I got paid far more. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, and I got some free hamburgers and pints of beer. Right. And I was treated better, you know. And so I worked for them for about three years, and then my home studio that I accidentally started. Just started getting busy, and mm-hmm. I, I had Stephen Malkmus, Cat Power, um, the Spinanes doing demos, um, all kinds of people. Bands would come through. I had a band from New Zealand and Canada. How are they hearing about you? Because this is pre-internet, right? Yeah, this is all my old connections okay. from, from being in that band for so long. I also wrote for for small zines and magazines, mm-hmm. and so I would just um, have. I'd go see friends that I'd played with before and they'd be like oh my god can we stay at your house like sure you know and then oh you got a studio so it kind of like you know and then word would get out yeah when when you're in portland look up that larry guy you know and we were on a label that was in dc yeah called teen beat and he would send bands like versus and stuff like oh you're going through portland i need a song for a compilation track can you knock it out oh you know things like that just sort of like just serendipitous to a degree but also as I found through doing all this, is like you you don't just start with one goal in mind. You kind of like let it all focus in sure. on what you what you're a good facilitator for, you know. Do you, um so but this uh, this was it in your basement? This home studio in, oh, in, yeah. your, in your basement? Was... It was called Laundry Rules Recording because the okay. previous tenants had had written on the wall the Laundry Rules with, with Sharpie yeah. or something the Laundry Rules, like, right. and they were all spelled wrong too, which was. <laughs> totally hilarious sure you know 
And so that that was so um, so that might not be officially called the start of Jackpot Records, but eventually a recording studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah recording I mean, studio. Yeah, I know Isaac and I. <laughs> you should interview Isaac. Keep, keep it in the right <laughs> lane Jackpot here. Jackpot Records. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, that it, it really was kind of though. I mean, the only reason I changed the name is because. Um, there was a studio called Laundry Room mm-hmm. in Seattle where actually Dave Grohl did his first Foo Fighters record okay. there. Or he worked with the guy that owned that, actually. He did it at a different studio. But um, so that I knew that was starting to happen, that people get it confused and mm-hmm. stuff. And I was like, oh. And then so uh, I was looking for a commercial space. And another friend of mine, a mutual friend of mine and Elliot Smith's, mm-hmm. knew that we were both going to build studios like in the coming year and said, you need to talk. And... Uh, we had a meeting and I said, I'm not gonna get a partner, which total lot, I mean, seems crazy to say no to working with Elliot Smith as a partner, but right. in a way it was really smart because his career was just diverging into other stuff. So he helped me build out this, we found a space in uh, uh, 23 years ago, 22 years ago, we found a space in uh, Southeast Portland and started building it out, put a wall in and made the studio. He brought his gear down and, and the idea was that he would work out of there kind of prorated mm-hmm. you know like whatever our rent and utilities cost and since he was helping build it and put the gear in there and we did we did you know he was doing demos i was helping him and and uh you know he's working up new ideas for his next record which was was going to be uh, xo his first major label right record. yeah so so it was actually so if i understood that correctly it was actually the recording studio you wanted to recording studio is what right introduced you to elliot smith this mutual friend saying hey you're or you were you knew, maybe you were already friends of it with yeah him. <coughs> excuse me i'd never let's see i had recorded him actually before that in oh, my okay. house yeah my home studio one day I was throwing a party and uh, Joanna Balmay and him were dating at the time. She plays with Stephen Malkmus and mm-hmm. the Chicks now. And uh, Joanna was at the party because we had all these mutual friends and Elliot was at the party. And he said, hey, he's always really shy. You know, he wasn't like a- Really outgoing. Look at me, yeah. you know? And yeah. he, he's like, hey, uh, could I uh, look at your studio downstairs? And then we go inside and he's like, oh yeah, this okay. Because he needed to do some overdubs for his Either Or album. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, his console had broken, like his mixing board. So I right. couldn't listen to his tape deck. And oh, he had okay. the same exact kind of reel to reel tape deck, like a little eight track. Mm-hmm. And so he knew that his tapes would play at my place. And so he came over and we did the vocals for a song called Pictures of Me, which is a really fantastic orchestrated little song. And it was completely different. I'd only ever heard his first record, Roman Candle, and this was going to be his third mm-hmm. solo record outside of heat miser and the right. bands he was doing um so i was like wow this is like you know this sounds like the zombies or the left bank or something and he's like oh you like that kind of music you know and i, I just think we had a, we never really said like oh now we're friends you know right but along it just kind of just naturally happened yeah we, yeah we we definitely had the same vision of of what kind of music we liked and stuff and even when we moved into the studio space um He's like, well, it might be hard to record me because I've, I've bumped heads with people before. And I was like, I never bumped heads with him ever in the studio. I was hmm. just I was just facilitating his vision because he, he knew what he wanted. You didn't have to say like, oh, you're doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, now I have to guide people and, and I'm usually older than most of the people I record and I got more experience and I go, oh, you know, let me help you with this, you know. Right. But with Elliot, you just kind of put the mic up and go, Okay, you know the magic was already done, written, sure. ready to go. <laughs> I, I I think that's one of the things that uh, we often forget about when it comes to 
the finished product from a band or an artist is when they're in that recording studio exactly what role does the producer actually yeah. do whether they are full on kind of steering the ship or if they're just there to it can be anything yeah you know and that's the fascinating thing that's why you can also have a magazine and write about it for 23 years right is because it's it's a completely changing target all the time um the what 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 i do in the studio is dependent on what the person brings in and what they want and so i have sessions where i have to just like kind of manhandle it like really like pull everybody in yeah. and sit them down and go man this is a mess like how are you playing this part and I have to be an arranger, mm-hmm. a counselor. And are are, are uh, some people open to that, or what, what is it? It may, probably depends on who you're talking to. Absolutely, some people don't need it. Right. That's the other case is you have other ones where you just kind of like record it and gently suggest a few little tiny ideas, and it's good because it's it was it was there already. Yeah, you know, it's a matter. It's like focusing a lens. It's like you don't you don't focus when it's when it's already in focus. You leave mm-hmm. it alone. So I, you know, I try to play. I mean, especially back then when I first started, I was very hands off. I would just record, and someone might go, "Am I flat?" And I'd go, uh. <laughs> "Right, I don't know. It's recorded." And now I'm really more outgoing about that. I'll be really, you know, um, how do you, you know, I'll make, I'll form an opinion, you sure, know, and I'll form an opinion, and I'll, and I'll jump in and go, "Hey, hey, you know that that section there? Let's let's retrack it. Mm-hmm. You could do it better." So, but it really, you really need to be good at this. You have to be like a room reader, you know, you have to walk in the room right? and, and, and maybe it's some pre-production, maybe it's even just emails and phone calls or visiting this, have a band visit the studio and kind of suss it out. But it's, you just have to set up for success, you know? Right. And, and you're gauging personalities in there. Yeah. Who's going to be kind of take charge who might not be. Absolutely. Yeah. And then if, if someone is really quiet, then you kind of keep an eye on them and make sure because they might have like one amazing idea that the other people are tromping over. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of little personality, uh, psychological things you got to watch for. And, uh, and and really you're just keeping, sometimes you're protecting the music from the artist. Like the artist is going to mangle the music in some way. Like right. Miss, uh, their ideas might over, their production ideas might overtake the music to a degree. And you got to say, hey, you know, ease up, you know. Or they might try to do things too rigid when it should be looser. Sure. You know, click track, no click track. Uh, what kind of instrumentation? You know, there's a lot of variables and a lot of decisions. And is this is this stuff you've just learned over the years? Because, again, you didn't set out to do this, but you found yourself in it. <laughs> I, th- this is a, it's always an interesting thought, but I really feel like I had the producer skills long before I had the technological skills. Okay. And, and then because of the reason being is that I knew what, I liked about lots of records as a music fan. Mm-hmm. I would say, I don't like the sound of that record, but the songs are great. And I would have opinions, you know, and I wrote as a critic, I wrote reviews of a lot of underground releases and stuff mm-hmm. where their budgets are small, you right. know? So I'd be like, well, that's really good for a homemade record or sure. what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just think that, you know, yeah, you build up skill over time too. And, and you, so like, say you'd get to the mixing stage, you weren't being, if I say I was, Early on, I was recording somebody, and they were just throwing tracks down, and I was going, okay. And then mixing was really hard. I couldn't get everything to fit. Like, it's too dense, or right. things are clashing in the same frequency range. Then I'd go, okay, keep that in mind. Next session, you know, hey, play that guitar part up higher so that, you know, okay. there's a guitar at, at three different frequencies instead of one. Sure. And then you have this 
kind of mixing landscape to work with that's more open mm-hmm. and then all the sounds can be heard and then the band doesn't cry <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know so and that's probably uh <laughs> as i tried to you know i tried to get us to, the, to this uh conversation or this topic yeah early on that's where tape op came out is Absolutely. this is basically the things you're talking about thinking about Talking about yeah, so th- I mean, this is for industry folk people that are in the recording. Maybe not necessarily not, industry folk, but I would say you know th- people the, that are interested in recording. If you in e- studios, even if you like an artist a yeah. lot, I mean, we're trying to we we have this in Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have about forty five thousand readers of the print edition, seventy five thousand around the world of, of the PDF version. Okay, and uh, one thing we're kind of considering at this point. Uh, is that it's not just so much for people that are looking at just this technical end of record making, but music fans these days are picking it up and going, wow, you know, I learned so much about this Solomon Burke record I love that you wrote about the producer, Joe Henry. Yeah. You know, I learned something about how the music was created and it was really, so it's kind of like a, a if you look at something like Rolling Stone historically or um, any of the top music magazines, Spin, whatever, and you look at those and you say, what are these articles about? They're usually more about their personalities and what led up to the new album and stuff like this. And mm-hmm. we're we're taking we're opening the back door and we're saying no 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 this is what it's about this is how the record really got made right you know that's that's the stuff I get fascinated with you know it was just recently the the fiftieth anniversary or yeah the fiftieth anniversaries of like um, the Beatles a bunch of the Beatles albums oh the White album the White album and Sergeant Pepper Sergeant Pepper and, oh, and going in and hearing how obviously the band had their vision, but how it was people like you, the mm. engineers that saw their vision and made it actually happen. Like you, all the looping that had oh, to yeah. take place. And if you listen to, I mean, I've met a lot of the people that worked on these records. And if you listen to, especially Sergeant Pepper, like Jeff Emmerich's production was kind of revolutionary at the time, getting more direct sounds mm-hmm. and getting things to really pop. And then his, his recording engineering. And then George Martin's production is arrangements and keyboards and, 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 and knowing they were only doing yeah. it on like an was it did they have an eight track that the that thing? was a four track a four, record only okay. four four channels of audio and then and they, they would, would submix over, it to yeah. another tape deck on the two yeah. and then add two more just, just and you had to really plan it out and right. think about it you have to think almost yeah. eight or nine steps ahead oh yeah I mean I started on tape with jackpot it started as a sixteen track studio and now that almost seems laughable when people send me seventy two track things to mix you right. know and done in their computer yeah. And, but it, the, the great thing about a format like that is it makes you kind of arrange and think ahead and visualize like how many things do we want to put on this song. So you, right. you, if you think I'm going to have a string section, but it's a rock track, then you go, well, maybe the guitars shouldn't be like super full range because we need room for those strings to fit in the mix. Yeah. But if you start adding stuff on later, like kitchen sink approach, like, oh, let's just keep throwing things right. at it. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. Just because you can, it doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. you should. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's really a hard thing. That's the thing I try to teach people as a, as an educator, as a producer, as an engineer, everything I do and in the magazine, as an editor, I try to teach them like, you've got to have a, your eye on the prize. There's, there's a way of working where you can throw everything at the at the wall, but then you have to do reductionist mixes and, and you're not just doing a balance mix, you're turning things off and then having them come in and out and you're building the song out of that. Yeah. Like like Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot's a great example of that process. There's it sounds like there's at times things missing from the mix and then they come in and it's really exciting. Right. So that's that's a way of doing like a reductionist mix where you're taking things out and or any of the Peter Gabriel's earlier records, there would mm-hmm. be all these tracks going of things and they would just be turned to mix with the song was really determined by the mixing. Mm-hmm. They just mute things, open them up on the console and go, 
this section will have these playing, you know, right. then we'll turn it off, you know, and it's really, if you put the multi-tracks up, and I've talked to the people that played on those and recorded those, if you put the multi-tracks up, just push all the 24 faders up on the tape, it'd right. sound like a mess, yeah. you know, but it's been sculpted in the mix process. So that's, that's a brilliant way to work, but you have to have a lot of time and you have to be incredibly intuitive and then put your vision on the mix and that's where you create the excitement. And, and that can totally be done. A lot of pop music these days is done that way. If you mm-hmm. listen to really top 40 productions, they're, they're almost all kind of done in a certain way related to that. Right. And also related to the production of, of hip hop and electronic music and all sorts of things that have happened in the last you know 30 years. It, it, it is interesting because, I mean, granted, you, you know, if you had a little four track or a recorder in your in your home, you could you could do some things. But now with sure. Pro Tools and MacBooks and a few microphones, people are turning their homes into little recording studios yeah. for good and for bad. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I don't think there's ever a bad. Rec- I mean, honestly, like recording is great. Sure. It's always good. Whether the world needs to hear it is the question. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I work on things sometimes, honestly, I get sent mixes from all over the world to yeah. work on. Here's the multi-tracks. Can you mix it? And I'll always make someone happy and I'll make it sound better. But there's times, you know, like I'll solo a vocal and I'll be cleaning up the vocal edits or something. And I'll, I'll be like, I don't know what this song's about. And I'm listening to just the vocal. Yeah. And it makes me, you know, it makes me a little sad because it's a missed opportunity to express oneself or or such and maybe there's beautiful music around it but then there's nothing in the lyrics that really grabs you and you're like oh man you spent too much time thinking about the guitar parts and not the lyrics you know so it sounds it sounds as if your um your music fan fanness i don't know how to describe it you (laughs) you as a a fan of music yeah is is balanced with the the technical side of it so that they are in harmony with each other as opposed to canceling each other or out i think it's really important yeah i mean there's no there are very few and even in classical recording which is a little more like hands-off and technical um in a certain way there's very few people making great records that we like that um that don't look at the music with sort of an, a middle, a little bit of awe and wonderment, you know, mm-hmm. and as a fan, because if you, if you look at this stuff as, as, as the job I do sometimes of just setting up mics and setting levels and stuff, that's actually a lot of it's quite easy. Right. But the hard part is understanding when to change that mic out and when to coach somebody through a vocal part and when to not record and say, Hey, let's run through this some more and work. You know, those are the hard parts. And, so the act of recording itself is really kind of the, a minor part of the whole, in my opinion, and that the vision and the and, and learning how to present things properly is, is massively important. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Talking Trash, a Green Tips podcast is a chance for me to jump into the world of sustainability by talking to people in business, government, and nonprofits. Hi, I'm Peggy Lapointe. You can find weekly episodes every Tuesday at kink.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. How much uh, work these days, um, not to bounce around too much, yeah, but yeah, I, th- no I think it's related. How much, I, like, I, th- I know back in the day, I always used to hear, like, studio time is so expensive, so you got to uh-huh. get in there, just bang it out. So all the rehearsals are done. Yeah, they just yeah. go in. Is it that way anymore, or is it a little more go in and create? 
Some bands. I mean, some bands. I just did a band that we did a record on 16-track tape, mixed a quarter-inch tape um, in really like two and a half days. Mm -hmm. Like pretty much a long EP or a short album. Right. Because the guys had rehearsed the stuff up. It was two guys backing up a songwriter who was their buddy. They were really adept musicians. He's a great songwriter. He doesn't need a lot of coaching on stuff. He just kind of like throws down a vocal and we all go, well, that's pretty good, yeah. you know? So, you know, that was a real expedient process and it was kind of reward rewarding because on the other hand, I'm working on something right now that I started um, kind of thinking about recording in like April last year and then I tracked two days of recording and, and since then I've been like editing and mixing yeah. this stuff and it's not even pop music, it's like avant-garde but it's very specific to the to the scores and, and things have to be nudged and moved until they line up with the score for the composers right. to be happy. And it's like, oh man, it's a lot of work and it's really taught me something about my uh, misconceptions going into this project. Like now I'm like, oh, I should have thought about it a different way because it just, I, I thought it would be very different and uh, and it's all coming together fine. But the, the process can be sometimes just very, very different. With the home recording thing, I mean, with people, the thing I see the worst aspects of are someone beating a, a, a poor take into the ground, trying to edit poorly played drums or trying to edit a bad vocal or just, you know, when maybe that's like, you know, I've, I've been I've been hired to mix something and, and we're just passionate, we're chopping it up and rebuilding it and all this stuff. And then by the time we're done, I'm like, if we got a drummer and a bass player in here and you just recut that right now to, to this template, yeah, it would be amazing. But it, this sounds like it's been hacked out, right? You know, like yeah. it's like when someone gives you a steak and it looks like someone was kind of like beating on it with a knife and a, a hammer in the back room. Sure. And it's all kind of mangled. I'm going to make this tender. Yeah, it's like doesn't look good. Yeah. it's like someone chewed on it already. <laughs> is that a, is that a result of kind of recording in in a vacuum, recording in isolation, where you you know again you can yeah. go in and do it all on your own. You don't have that sure. other person to kind of say, hey, maybe you should try this or maybe don't do that. I think so too. I think I think one of the the things I was really lucky about early on was working on four different albums or four albums with two different producers when I was in a band and they were really good producers for what we were doing. So I learned the process and I learned when to uh, kind of evaluate yourself, even from seeing an outside person evaluate my takes mm -hmm. or, and then keeping their eye on the prize for us. And I was like, wow, an outside opinion's amazing. It doesn't mean you always have to have one, but you can teach yourself to like change perspective. Right. You know? And I think, a lot of times um, people tend to, you know, they, 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 they think there's magic in a first take when there isn't because it's, it's new and it's fresh. And sometimes that's nice and there's some kind of slight energy about it, but other times it needs to be presented in a better way. Yeah. And, and it's hard for them to let go of that. And other times, honestly, this is, a, this is the amazing falsity of home recording goodness is I don't know how many times I've been teaching a workshop or answering an email from a reader or something, and one of the things they run into is that they're like, I go, why, why don't you just start over? And they go, well, the drummer's really busy and he's not available and we can't. So the unlimited time, or you know, I can hardly record in my house because my wife's upstairs and, and when she walks around, it makes noises yeah, it in my mm -hmm. studio or you know, my kids are running around in the next room or something like that, you know, and it's like, the the, re, the reality the, the the fiction is you have unlimited time to make your record. The reality is you don't. Yeah. And if you actually, I found many clients start that way, and then they go, "Oh man, I can't get anything done." And then they'll book like you know 
a week at my studio and it's like they, they walk out with a finished mix and they go that was amazing yeah like there's no ice there's no interruptions in here mm-hmm. everything's all those instruments ready to play you know yeah <laughs> everything's ready to go let's make a record um as a as a audio engineer as a recording engineer and as the editor of, of tape op it, it sounds as if you know you're 30 plus years into doing this but you're still learning every single time is oh, there anything yeah. that you could you know where it, during whether during a session or maybe during an interview where as a as an engineer you're like oh i never thought to do it that way are you oh man i mean i tell people all the time i say like you want to learn i never went to school for recording like learning audio recording mm-hmm. and i tell them all the time if you want to be good at something interview the people that do it well <laughs> yeah because you'll sit, i'll sit down and i'll be like this with you and me and i'll be talking to someone who's made my favorite records and if I really like those records, I can ask an, an interesting question and get an amazing answer. And uh, there's there's definitely been times. There's been times that people will just say, they'll mention like the the slightest thing, like if you're recording an upright piano, pull it away from the wall. Mm-hmm. Oh, why? It's like, well, would you play an acoustic guitar up against a wall? Like, no, that'd sound weird. It's an acoustic instrument. Oh, oh, wow, you know. Yeah. Or someone said, um, you know, don't record like a, with the kick and snare drum in the exact center of the room. And I'm like, why? It's like, well, that's where all the frequencies, you know, because of the laws they're of all, physics. They're all meeting in there. They're all going to meet there. They're going to yeah. either build up or they're going to cut when, right. they, when they meet. So huh. you're going to either hear too much of one frequency and too little of another or, yeah. or whatever. And if you move, you know, to one third, like the this side or that side of the room kind of long lengthwise, if you go to the thirds, those actually sound better or just kind of move it around till it sounds better. I'll go to a new studio and I'm going to make a record there. I'll pick up a floor tom and a stick mm-hmm. and I'll just walk around hitting the floor tom till it sounds good. And I go, that's a good place for drums. <laughs> and you don't know how many times people have like, they'll be like, either either they go, that's amazing because that's where all the really good engineers put the drummer. Right. Because they know. Sure. Or they go, no one's ever put drums there before. And it's a studio that has no good records coming out of it yet. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Oh, hmm, interesting. So it's like, almost like your uh, your little special rod. You just go around yeah, tapping divining. around. Divining rod, yeah. <laughs> divining the Divining rod with drums, yeah. It's, it's an easy trick. It's, it costs nothing. You know, there's always a floor tom probably. Right. <laughs> I, I can imagine, um, uh, because I think I have a fascination for, the, for this whole process, but I don't think I have the patience. Because it, it sounds mm. as if <laughs> that might be the biggest thing you have to have throughout the entire thing for me i get really antsy towards the end of a project like yeah. i can see it coming together yeah and i just want it to be done yeah um where a lot of times you probably have the same thing but you realize i can see this coming together but i might have another day i might have another week i might have another couple of months sounds oh this yeah this project you've been working on since last april yeah i mean that's that's like because of digital editing and, and people because people have learned especially if you if i work with people that are under 30 or something at this point they've kind of come up with like digital recording means within their own laptop yeah. as, as a child. Even. Oh yeah. And so to them, everything is undoable. And I started off where you're recording on tape and mixing on a console to another tape deck and nothing is undoable. Mm-hmm. So it's like you have to just wipe it clean and do another pass, you know, and book more time. And so it, the amazing thing now is you, you know, I get emails like months later going, you know, we're just start, about to start mastering, but the hi-hat's too loud on the second verse. And you're like, Holy Christ, you know. Um, okay, let me see what I can do. You yeah. know, I try to find ways to leave what I call breadcrumb trails mm-hmm. so I can go backwards a little bit and provide whatever clients want because yeah. I don't want unhappy clients. Sure. 
Um, but there, there's times where it's like, wow, the sort of um, finality of tape and, and everything used to make everybody just sign off and go, okay, we're good, you know? Right. <laughs> and I think that was that was good in a way. I don't, I don't have any desire to go back to the old days of, of working ever. You know, I utilize those techniques occasionally, but I don't, I don't want things to go backwards. And I'd love some of the things I can do with a computer and a digital audio workstation and, and I can work faster on some things. And there's other stuff like doing a, you know, a, a, a audio book or, or any kind of post-production, which is just so much better to do digitally. Sure. You know, I mean, I'd, I had a radio once that was like radio play from Miranda July. She's a filmmaker now mm-hmm. and an author. And we did a record of hers where it was kind of like a long form radio play and I did it on tape and we'd have to just like wipe sections and re reperform them sure. all the time to get them to have it happen at the same time. Cause we couldn't cut and edit because there were crossovers and yeah. you know, I mean now with a digital system, you can just move everything around in seconds. We would have saved days. It was insane. When I, uh, I when I got into radio about 20 years ago, it was the tail end of still having carts in the mm-hmm. studio to play the commercials on, and we would still take phone calls on on tape. And so if you wanted to play back a listener, you'd have to yeah. do the qu- you know cut, you'd cut it cut and tape. tape it. And, oh yeah, you know record your part if you need, had to redo it. And the yeah. instant we brought in those digital tools, yeah. it it changed everything. I, th- I think yeah. in that case for the better, right? For those oh, yeah. for those simple things. Um, I mean, there's no there's no audio quality of a phone call on tape that that sounds ever, better oh, on right. tape. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> we, we say that all the time in the studio. Like that wasn't the thing that was good about that back then, right? Like the tape that's, is. That's why the, I've been curious because yeah. we we've had a couple of cassette tapes sent to us recently by by record labels. And we're and, and first of all, what we don't yeah, we don't have a cassette player in this building. This this multi million dollar state of the art facility does not have a cassette player in it. Oh my! But God. I was just like, I, I I don't think that there is a I don't think people have nostalgia towards the sound of a cassette compared to the warmth that comes out of a vinyl record. Some do. I mean, I just talk the, to the a, warble. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm trying to restore something for a possible release right now that was recorded on cassette and mixed to another cassette. And the cassettes were really fallible. They ran at one and seven eighths inches per second, mm-hmm. which is about as slow as you can run tape without just taking over and tape hiss. Right. And um, they generally, most consumer units, even the best ones you could get, have a little bit of wow and flutter, like you called it warble. Yeah, though, yeah. And technically it's wow and flutter, and it's just the mechanism not playing steadily, so the pitch is shifting subtly all the time. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it in a musical way, we do that with guitars sure. and things like tremolo bars. and. But you have control over that. <laughs> yeah, we have control of that situation. <laughs> I mean, and the saturation, compression limiting of, of cassette tape is really unique. I mean, it really does kind of flatten things out mm-hmm. in, a, in a levels way. You can just overload into it and then play it back, and it's got kind of an edge to it. And So I know people have used that and then dumped it into the computer, cleaned it up, and made cool stuff. And people did records like Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, you know, on yeah. a four-track cassette. Um, you know, Guided by Voices made a bunch of records that way. But, um, you know, it it limits you and it has a certain limitation of frequency response, all sorts of things. I would not want to do that. Mm-hmm. But I just talked to a friend that produced a record for someone on four-track cassette. So, And it's a great songwriter, so it'll probably be a good record, you know. Yeah. I mean, anything, the problem about making records is anything can overcome anything. So, like, you can say, I'm going to put one mic in a room and record these guys, and you go, well, that's going to be terrible. And you go, no, they're the best jazz band in the world, and I got an $8,000 mic. And you go, oh, well, that, that might be pretty good. You know, and because right. the room sounds great. Oh, sure. Oh, wow, okay. 
and the best engineer in the world is going to move the mic around till it sounds better. You know, in okay. the right spot. Sure. Okay, that'll be fine. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, I have a friend, John Cunabert. He does a one mic series down in. The, he's done some up here and he's done done most of them in the Bay Area. And it's one stereo mic in a room, and they sound just beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like so. Yeah, that can be done. So when you look at limitations or there's no way to say like one way is that is, is not going to work or that, you know, there's always a, there's always some caveat, you know, mm-hmm. that another way might be great. And that's kind of the fascinating thing. That's why you, another reason why you can keep writing about it for this long, right. you know, there's so many, you know, things you could, you can, you could say, I'm going to do all with one mic and then I'm going to overdub around it. And like, Oh, if you're really careful, that could be kind of neat. Mm-hmm. It'd be a really focused performance with little additional filigree, you know? It sounds as if uh, Jackpot Recording Studio, you've you basically it, you can go there and get the the full gamut of all that stuff. You've got yeah. the, you've got the new digital stuff, Absolutely. but you haven't abandoned no. the. Uh, when we, you look at your projects, yeah. what are you? Is it a mix of all of that, or are you doing more analog still? Man, it's I don't do a ton of analog. I probably I probably personally do like two or three records a year that stay on analog, mm-hmm. and um, I really. Um, Oh, I feel like I'm a wedding planner when that comes around. I'm really careful to set it all up to succeed because yeah. I really have to make sure they understand uh, what they're getting into. I've had projects in the past where they say, I want to do this all on tape, and they've never worked on tape, and then they, they just start throwing ideas down, and you're like, we're out. Yeah. What do you mean you're out? Use 24 tracks. We have Where are we going to put the vocal? You know, right. And that happens a lot. It's crazy. But um, on other sessions, the ones I've done in, recently, they've been very successful because I – we sit down, we talk about kind of the ground rules, you know, mm-hmm. like if a take's not happening, let's just do it again. Don't even, I'm not going to cut the tape to edit one kick drum. You know, let's just, just, just keep going till we can get a good take. You know, I might cut two takes together on the master tech sure. track tape, but, um, I have, you know, I have a 16 track, two inch tape deck ready to go, a 24 track, two inch ready to go and a quarter inch, um, two track for mixing down to. And a console that does 32 channels, um, a Rupert Neve Designs console, really elegant. And, and then I've got like some of the top end like converters and stuff by companies like Burl and stuff that take the audio and turn it into digital. And um, unbelievably, my whole studio on the digital realm is running on a Mac Mini. Oh, that's, wow. That's all I really? need. Really? Pro Tools doesn't require that much power. Wow. It's amazing. So, but I have, you know, a hundred microphones and preamps and equalizers i've just hundreds and hundreds of this analog equipment mm. which you need even in digital realm to get it in there right and have choices and and to get really high quality audio when needed or or low quality maybe right so, so it's basically a, a big hybrid of all of these p- different pieces Absolutely. That, that, I mean, that you have and and people can come in and work totally analog totally digital any way they want yeah you know people can come in and just start building loops in the box and there's nothing being recorded if they want to, you know, we can run Logic, Pro Tools, Ableton Live, anything they want. Sure. Outside of the analog to digital switch that we've seen over the past yeah. tw- 20 or so, years, what, what's been the other big change in the Portland music scene that you've seen since? Oh, man. I'm, uh, you know, if you uh, can name one. <laughs> Some don't change. Yeah. Dandy Warhols are out on tour right now. Aren't right. They? Um, that's amazing. Um, you know, I think when I first started, there were probably less studios um, okay. and and now there's more, but it's great that there's like all sorts of studios filling different uh, needs for different sizes or sure. cost. Uh, there's a lot of great people in town making records and, and, and then some of us are more expensive like my place to a degree and, and offer more V 
features. Sure. And others are very focused on genre or just sort of more like budget underground, you know. Is there a camaraderie in there? Because I know in the yeah. what's what I found is that it's unique about the Portland food scene, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it's it's uh, community not competition is which they use they say a lot is that does yeah. that exist in the, I mean, nobody in the recording goes, studios no one goes to the same restaurant every night right right and, <laughs> and a lot of times you'll see the the you know these, yeah. these chefs supporting each other oh yeah is that does that exist in the recording studio field here in yeah, portland i mean because you couldn't have like the only studio yeah. in a town you, i mean unless you want to buy them all up or something right you know um you know, in, in this field, it's very much like a service industry, and and you want to offer different things. And every every engineer that owns it, their own studio or not, offers a different uh, take on it and a different price and skill level. And uh, and I think we we actually we have a thing. We get together once a month and meet at a, at a dive bar, and people are welcome to show up. And we put the word out every mm-hmm. once in a while. And we've had meetings at my studio, and then the Recording Academy has held meetings for us to all just hang out and talk. Um, there's a producers and engineers wing of the Recording Academy, the Grammy people, mm-hmm. and we meet up. and And so there's a lot of like ways for everyone to. And there's even a there's even a, a listserv that's hidden on the internet somewhere that we use to talk to each other. Oh, hey, this guy's it's on the dark web. He's kind of the dark web. It's like, hey. Don't trust this client. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, pay, we'll email each other yeah, warnings. That, that happens. I see that in yeah. the food. I, I see that in the food industry oh, a lot, yeah. where they've got right. the the diner ditchers and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, we we talked about Elliot Smith briefly early yeah. on, and I would love to turn back um, uh, and, and talk a little bit about your relationship with him because following his his death in it was two thousand three, right? I think so. Yeah, I think it was 15 years last year. Um, you and I don't know if it was automatically, but you eventually have become his catalog archivist. His archivist, yeah. Um, when he passed away, about 10 days later, I was supposed to go to L.A. He actually had bought me a flight, and I was supposed to go to L.A. and work with him and finish up, uh, with, or try to help finish up what became uh, from a basement on the hill. Yeah, his 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 last posthumous record. So you know, the last record he was kind of working on at the time. And I didn't, obviously, because he passed away. And um, I didn't, you know, my friends, Rob Schnapp, who'd produced a bunch of his records, and my friend Joanna Balme went and kind of oversaw the mixing and worked with his family to finish that record up. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get asked, and I, and I was like, fine, it's, it's not the same deal as what I thought was happening. And I really didn't want to be, I wanted to be involved, but I didn't want to raise my hat or jump right. in the fray. I, I don't, there's something felt really weird about that. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, uh, just stayed on the sidelines and along the way his, I think kill rock stars or his family can, uh, contacted me about doing, uh, an expanded version of either or this third album mm-hmm. and looking for bonus tracks and stuff. And when I started, when I got the go ahead and I started doing that, I, I asked, uh, Elliot's father, I said, um, you know, would there should be an archivist because we don't know what's in the vaults, you know? Right. And uh, he said, do you want the job? And I was like, oh gosh, I got to think about this. I've never done that, you yeah. know? But I ended up spearheading. I did the New Moon record before I started archiving. Uh, I went to LA and I found reels and I had them shipped up and I listened to everything. I made rough mixes and said, here's what we could put on the bonus disc. And it was like, there's too much. Mm-hmm. Like, well, let's just make an independent release. And that became New Moon. And then I started archiving after that um, transferring more reels to digital and, um, and oversight. I would, I would just be having, you know, setting up like storage places with, 
with archival transfer houses and doing all this kind of coordination initially and then got this huge raid drive full of data mm-hmm. and started like making rough mixes. I mean, I seriously spent a few years uh, of time um, off and on just working on that and and uh, and just m- making sure we knew what was in the vault. Right. I, found, I found a lot of unreleased like things, alternate takes, et cetera, a lot of live stuff got archived. Mm-hmm. All kinds of material. Some of it um, is unavailable to his family technically for use because it's it's under the contract he signed for his major. Oh, for label. the labels, yeah. yeah. But other stuff is, and and a few little things have come out. Like the Heaven Adores You documentary had stuff that I mixed mm-hmm. for the soundtrack, and uh, lots of other little uh, the either or bonus uh, remastered version came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. That has stuff that uh, that we found live and and studio, and so there's there's things that can be. Uh, there's not like a missing record, you know, right. or anything, um, but there's just lots of interesting little things and, and things that you learn from when you hear d- alternate versions. I was going to say, you, you probably heard, uh, if you're going through all of it or yeah. all that was available, yeah. probably the progression of him as an artist, like his songwriting, oh, yeah. how it changed. Or I mean, even the same song a few years later that pops oh, abs- back up. Always. <laughs> you hear, you can even find some of stuff, the stuff he wrote in high school that pops back up near the end of his life. So that's like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, just the same chords or something, you know, but uh, he was in a band here in Portland. Uh, he went to uh, Lincoln High School. Yeah. And he had a band called uh, Stranger Than Fiction mm-hmm. with some friends and, and some of those they made cassettes and they sold them to other kids at the high school. Right. And so those pop up, I've got those all in the archive and they're out there somewhere, but not very many. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hearing, uh, anyone's high school music would be very different than oh, hearing, yeah, yeah. hearing them 10 years later and, and such. So definitely you hear a progression and you hear him trying to figure out how he wants to sing his vocal style. Yeah. It's at some point he kind of sounded like Joe Strummer and then he kind of sounded like Elvis Costello. And, oh wow. And finally you get what, which I, I got to be honest. The first time I recorded him, I thought he sounded a lot like Alex Chilton from from Big Star. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's what I hear. Yeah. But I thought, oh, everyone's just going to like laugh at him because he sounds like this other singer. But I think people. He did a cover of Thirteen, one of Alex's songs, and I think people just kind of understood it was something that, you know, that made sense. It didn't. It wasn't like just an imitation, you know. Right. But to me, it definitely sounded similar in the way the approach and such. Is is that a project that it, I'm assuming? I mean, the that music's not infinite. So as as the mm-hmm. are, is that pretty much wrapped up? Have you sorted through everything that's probably available, or yeah, do things still pop I've, up? Every I've got now some and then? work to do. I got about three okay. years of things I've set aside, and some of them are just releases that need to be cataloged back into sure. the archive, and uh, just some data backups and certain things like that. And you know, there's a there's still missing reels that. You know, I know there's a missing reel, like for his second solo record. That, yeah, somewhere out there. Because the songs aren't available anywhere in our archive, except, you know, his multi-tracks. And I'm like, oh, man, I wonder. And they used to be stored at Jackpot, and I always think, God, did someone just run off with one? Right. I mean, it would have, it could have happened. I didn't know, have any inclination, any idea that it did, but what if? And that makes me feel awful. As as an uh, as an archivist, is there a protocol you have? Is is there like a set things that you should be doing? Because I'm fascinated by this because it's not necessarily something I think as people set out as musicians that yeah. they're thinking about. They should be archiving a lot of I this mean, stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I this my whole life is me stumbling into like I never learned an instrument and I ended up as a bass player. I sure. never learned how to edit a magazine, I ended up as an editor. Yeah. I never learned how to record, I ended up recording. So my take on archiving was just like I had a little bit of advice from the guy who was doing the main transfers and he set up a file maker system. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I use that to be able to search stuff. And I haven't learned it that well. I actually have a guy that I might have pay to teach me more. Right. But, um, you know, I got the data in there and that's like, but the main thing you're doing is like, you're trying to make sure that anything out there is, is especially with analog. This is, this is the hard thing. Analog tape, if you get a better tape deck, a better quality tape deck with better tape heads and electronics, you can get more off that tape. Sure. It's not a finite thing like the way digital audio is. It's finite. If you take a, a digital audio tape and you transfer it, you, you've got it. That's all there yeah. was. Zeros unless, and ones just went from there to there. Unless it's messing up somehow, yeah. you know. So with the audio, with like when I transferred, when I made the New Moon record, I was transferring the same reels that we transferred again later with better equipment. And I was like, oh man it could have sounded a little better you yeah. know and that was a real heartbreak you know for me because it's just the more information you hear sometimes the more real things sound sure. audio clarity and stuff so the main thing you're trying to do with the archiving is to get the best transfers possible and then basically catalog them and if there's a song that you can't you know you listen to it the raw tracks for a song and you go oh that sounds like the one on this record and you listen an a b and make sure and then maybe you go oh but there's a a track that he didn't use in the mix of alternate vocals. Make a note of that. Mm-hmm. Make a rough mix. Go to the next song. Okay, when does this start? And then you go, is this song on a record? Maybe it wasn't. So then you make a rough mix of it, and then maybe there's two sets of vocals and they're different. So you print both of those. Make notes of that. Yeah. Go to the next song. And it's back to this patience <laughs> thing. So it's it's time yeah. consuming. It's tedious. But there there's a reason for it. Yeah, I never really answered the patience question too earlier. I mean, it really is something you you have to take yourself out of the equation yeah um, the, what you have coming up at 5 30 doesn't matter yeah yeah i mean i i find that i won't even tell clients if i'm going to a, a show that night or something if pretty much hoping we'll stop at eight yeah you know right and i, I try to take myself out of the equation I, if i'm hungry and i'm sitting there i just don't say anything yeah or i'll have a you know a bag of peanuts in my locker at the studio right i mean i just you have to take yourself out it's more that they're the most important people in the room yeah and you have to be supportive and just like, and sometimes just wait for things. I have some sessions that are very slow relatively, and I have to be ready for that. Just sit around, drink coffee, and talk for an hour and a half before we even track something. Mm-hmm. If that's what they want, then I do that. You right. Know? I don't have to say, like, get going. Yeah, yeah. Other times I have to corral people because sure. I know they have limited time. So it's, but patience is, you know, it's hard to learn. It was hard for me early on to get into recording people especially if i didn't wasn't 100 percent into their music and i was spoiled because i was getting elliot smith and quasi and um satan's pilgrims and all these really fun bands that i enjoyed Mm -hmm. in portland um early on and then i would do some other session that just called out of the blue yeah so i'm like oh i'm recording some of portland's best music and then i'm recording uh, a fake grunge band for instance right you know like kind of you know oh Okay, kind of every every other word was babe, rawr, you know, yeah. or something like what is this? You know, I wouldn't really necessarily like it. The guys might be really nice. Um, you know, I'd try to forge friend be friendly and have a good time, but I didn't really want, I didn't put much into it back then. I would just kind of record it and try to make it sound good. 
And now if you sent me something even like that, I would probably put more into it now. I've learned to kind of sublimate my own ego and sure. and and expectations and just say like what can I do to make this better for them? And and be and, and be a little more positive. Just it gives you a more positive uh vibe on on the outside of you that that will encourage them to to perform better and stuff. So yeah. it's a little zen or something. I don't know what sure. it is, but it's, it Put, it helps. put that in tape op. <laughs> I have. I've written I'm, about that. Okay. See? <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of time, I've, I've had you for about the amount of time I told mm-hmm. you I would take. I, I really appreciate coming in. We could do another yeah. hour. We should do a, a part two sometime. I'm e- I'm, I'm, I can easily talk about myself for a long time. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. 